you'd like to turn to your in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to be taking that entire chapter this morning. So 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13, page 959. We're going to press onward in our series, a roadmap for growing Christians. Say we are in the home stretch. There's only 16 chapters. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together before we look to His Word. Heavenly Father, once again, we ask for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit as we open up the Bible. We want to understand what this passage means and we also want to apply it. We don't want to forget what we've read and, and heard. After we leave here, we want it to sink in and to take up residence in our heart. And we want to live before you more faithfully as a result of uh, listening and uh, hearing in faith. So, Father, this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a man named Ted who was taking his family on a vacation one summer and he decided that they were going to Niagara Falls and so they told all their friends before they went, we're going to Niagara Falls they said, oh enjoy, have a good time we went, it's really spectacular so they went on the trip and then they came back and they ran into one of these friends that, that they had told that they were going and the friend asked, they said, oh how was, how was uh, Niagara Falls, didn't you go on a trip? and Ted said, yeah it was, it was good, he said we didn't actually make it to the falls. And the friend gave a puzzled look and, and said, oh, oh, you mean you didn't actually, you didn't go on the, that boat ride, the Maid of the Mist, you didn't get all the way in that way? And he said, no, I mean, we didn't get there. We, we never made it to the falls. And once again, the, the friend gave a puzzled look and, and Ted said, yeah, we, we spent a lot of time uh, going to the, the Butterfly Conservatory and uh, there was an amusement park there, and uh, we, we ate at the Rainforest Cafe, and um, uh, we went to the Botanical Gardens, and uh, there, we had to make a visit to Ripley's, believe it or not, and he, he listed all these things, and the friend said, hold on a second, you mean you didn't go actually see the falls? So I said, well, we saw a picture of it on a postcard in one of the gift shops. How long did it take you to drive? He said, about 10 hours, one way. And the friend shook his head. He said, Ted, you went all that way and you missed the most important part of going on a trip to Niagara Falls. And Ted tried to downplay it. He said, oh yeah, well, you know, um, I figured I could get back to Niagara Falls whenever I wanted to. The, the, the falls aren't going anywhere. I'll just catch it some other time. This morning in our passage, Paul tells the raw believers in Corinth that if they practice spiritual gifts without love, then they have missed the most important part. They've missed the Niagara Falls of spiritual gifts. In the middle of teaching the church on spiritual gifts, Paul stops, and chapter 13 is right in the middle of this teaching that comes before it in chapter 12 and, the, and comes after it in chapter 14, and he gives this teaching on love. 
And, and despite how it is sometimes used, it's not a, um, a dedication to, to, to the love as, as the world sees it. It's not a, a hymn to love, or it's not uh, putting love on a pedestal in the sense that we normally think of uh, romantic love or emotional love. Instead, Paul's telling them that it's this agape love. It's this Christ-like love that is necessary for the church as she practices her spiritual gifts. In fact, it's the most important part. If, if you've missed this, if you've missed love in practicing your spiritual gifts, then, then you've missed the whole, the whole thing. So we're going to unpack agape love and see why it's so essential when practicing spiritual gifts. And we're going to see how that agape love that Paul highlights in this passage actually turns around and points us back to the cross of Jesus Christ. So let's read these 13 verses. 1 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 1. Actually picking up on on 31 of chapter 12. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I gave, give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not loved, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these three is love. The first thing we need to understand about this passage is what Paul means when he uses the word love. It pops up frequently in this passage. There are more than one word, uh, there is more than one word for love in the original language, and the two that are used most frequently in Scripture are uh, agape love and phileo love, and it's agape love every single time in this passage. It's that same agape love. And we could probably go into detailed descriptions of each one, but let's keep it very simple. We'll just nail this down so we never have to confuse these two again. Agape love is love of the will, and phileo love is love of the emotion. So love of the will, love of the emotions. That's it. It's just that simple. So this is the love of the will that's being described here. And he's going to unpack exactly what that looks like and what it means. But that's the type of love he's talking about. It's not the... um, emotional love that we probably are used to to thinking of when we hear the word love and it's not the same type of love that the world uses 
as in, oh, I, I think I'm falling in love, or I, I love you as we look into each other's eyes. That's, that's, phileo, that's love of the emotions. This is agape, love of the will. Verse 1, if I speak in tongues of men and angels, uh, the spiritual gift of tongues is going to be addressed, Lord willing, next week. We're going to talk about it in context, chapter 14. But for now, we need to understand that when he uses this phrase, tongues of men, he's talking about languages. He's talking about languages. So just as some people know one language today and other people know multiple languages, it was the same in the first century. Some people knew one language, some people knew multiple languages. So human languages. And then he says, and of angels. What does he mean by that? Well, if you look at the first three verses in this chapter, you'll see that he's taking each one of these examples to the extreme. He says, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith, and just like it's impossible to know all mysteries and and have all knowledge and and have all faith, likewise, it's not possible to speak in in this kind of manner with, with all languages and for that matter, even speak with angels, whatever they, language they possibly speak in. And we know angels are messengers of God, so they have, in times past, communicated with people in language that those people know. But what they speak of when they're in the heavenly realm, we, we don't know. But the, Paul's point here is to say this. Even if you had a maximum endowment of every single one of these spiritual gifts, but no love then they're not worth anything. That's what he's talking about. So when he's talking about the ability to talk to angels, he's trying to give an extreme example, as if this were possible type of language, as he does with the all knowledge and all faith. In in the case of speaking in different languages without love, you might as well be banging on a gong or a cymbal. That will be just as effective as in building up the church. Number two, prophetic powers, understanding all mysteries, all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. We kind of covered that just a minute ago. He's taking these to the extremes. We've also talked about each one of these gifts in detail. We talked about prophecy for a long time, a couple of weeks ago. This is the revealing of God's word by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The prophets in the New Testament had a similar but not identical gift as the apostles and the, the sameness of the, the prophets and the apostles were that they were delivering to the church the foundational doctrine and teaching necessary for establishing the church and delivering the faith once and for all, as, a, as Jude 3 states. Once that foundation is laid, that gift and those offices are no longer necessary. We have no apostles or prophets today. It ceased with the apostolic age. The foundation's been laid. We don't need to lay another foundation. Understanding mysteries can mean two different things. In the Bible, when we see the word mystery, sometimes it refers to the um, counsel and uh, purposes of God that have been withheld from from knowledge of of individual people and, and from his people in the past, but then he discloses and makes known. For example, the gospel. If you go to Ephesians Chapter 3, you're going to see this a couple of times. You're going to see the word mysteries. That's what he's talking about. The fullness of the gospel. The, the, the suffering servant of Jesus Christ. When they expected 
the Messiah. They expected somebody big and, and to make a big splash and to be powerful. They did not expect the Messiah to go and die as a common criminal on a cross. So that was part of the mystery. The inclusion of the Gentiles, that's a part of the mystery. So that's one sense that the New Testament uses the word mystery. But it can also use it just to mean something that was unknown previously, but now is known. Just, just some sort of knowledge. And we see this in Revelation one twenty. It says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Do you see how mystery there doesn't refer to the grand redemptive plan of God or something that's been hidden for ages in the past? He's simply explaining something to John. Uh, Jesus is explaining something to John that he didn't know beforehand. So that's the two ways mystery can be used in the New Testament. Knowledge means knowing something. Faith, remember this is, we've, we've talked about all these. Faith is something that is above and beyond saving faith that all believers have. It, it's, it's a special endowment that enables believers to perform some service to the church. And he's taking all these gifts to the extreme. And he says, that even if you had all these to the, to, to the extreme, if you had kind of maxed out gifts but no love, then it's worth nothing. It doesn't work. It's not going to build up the church. It's just no good because you're missing the most important part. Verse 3, if I give give away all I have, that's selflessness to, to the extreme. If I deliver up my body to be burned, that's an extreme personal sacrifice. Once again, if these things are done without love, then there's, there's nothing to be gained from it. Uh, verses 4 through 7, now Paul unpacks agape love. And you know how sometimes, uh, in order to understand something, it's helpful not only to hear a description of what it is, but also a description of what it's not. Sometimes that helps us understand and get a handle on things. And that's what Paul does. So he opens with telling us some things about what agape love is, And then sandwiched in between there, he tells us what it's not. And then he comes back and he closes with some more description of what it is. So he starts off saying it is patient and kind. Patient and kind. We see a lot of overlap with these words and the description in the New Testament that is directed to how believers are to live in general. For example, 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says... And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Ephesians 4, 1 through 2. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This should be not, none of this should be new to us if we've been believers for any amount of time. This is how Christ expects his followers to treat one another. Uh, Fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So no surprises there. These these are the types of things that we are to exercise uh, within the body. 
Now he switches to the negative. It does not envy or, or boast. And I think we're all familiar with that means, these kind of intense feelings of, of, of envy or, or coveting someone else's success or position. Uh, boasting is bragging or calling attention to ourselves. Love is not arrogant or rude. It, uh, it's not puffed up and prideful. It does not insist on its own way. That's self-seeking behavior. It's not irritable or resentful. Irritable could be translated as not easily angered. Uh, resentful means to, to keep a record of wrongs or, or to continually think some evil against someone who's, who's been unkind to you. Does not rejoice at wrongdoing. In other words, does not take pleasure in anything that, that is evil or, or considered an evil deed. Anything that is opposed to the gospel, not delighting in anything that's, that's false, wrong, or evil. Instead, it rejoices with the truth, and then he switches back to the, the positives. That's the other side of the coin. It's not rejoicing in anything that's wrong or evil, but it's delighting in the truth. It's re- delighting in the gospel. It's rejoicing in the truth, in whatever God says is good, right, and true, when we see it or experience it or, or, or watch it being manifested in the church. And then in verse 7, he wraps up this description of agape love by stating it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And this is Paul's way of saying this should permeate everything. This most important thing, this love, this agape love should, should permeate everything. All things means in everything or always should be present. So this agape love is to be a continual presence and governing ingredient to all our actions in the exercising of spiritual gifts within the church. Love is the most important part when it comes to exercising spiritual gifts. And then the last section we could call love is here to stay. He says love never ends. And and then in contrast, he mentions some things that are going to end. Um, Prophecy. Tongues, knowledge, uh, those, all, those things are all going to disappear. Why? Uh, they're not going to be needed any longer, he says. The return of Christ and the final judgment will be followed by an eternity with perfect communion with God. We will not have a need for those things. We won't need apostles and prophets and teachers and preachers to explain the, the will of God. We will be with God. We'll have complete understanding. He says, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. We know some things now. We don't know everything. When Christ comes, we will know in full. That means whatever God has determined, our full knowledge for eternity will be, whatever that is. Verses 11 and 12 are illustrations of a child and a mirror. So he puts himself in front, uses the personal pronoun I says that if, when I was a child, I did these things. And then when I became a man, I no longer did those things. I mean, the, the point's pretty obvious. He's saying, look, when you're a child, uh, let's say you're in preschool and, and you act a certain way and you, you talk a certain way and you do certain things, that's fine. Right? We expect that. In fact, it, it's good. It's called normal development if you if, are exhibiting these types of things when you're a preschooler. But if you acted like that when you're an adult, you're not going to be able to function very well. I doubt you're going to be able to hold down a job. People are going to wonder what's wrong with you. In other words, those things are for a time and for a season, but then after that season is over, they're not needed anymore. 
And that's what he's saying about these spiritual gifts that are needed now for the church. We do need, they did need apostles and prophets at that point. Uh, We still need teachers. We still need word-based gifts. But we're not going to need it then. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. They did not have mirrors that we have today, this, these nice, flat, polished pieces of glass with the silver reflecting on the back. We get some very nice, full-color uh, reflections in, in our mirrors. It's very nice. They didn't have that. They had polished metal, which was okay. You could kind of see yourself, but it was kind of this monochromatic reflection that was hazy, even at best, wasn't perfect. Again, I think we understand the point. He's saying, we can see some things now. We understand God as he wants us to understand him, but we're going to know him a lot better. We're going to see him with clear eyes once we are with him for eternity. So this illustration also might be an allusion to Numbers 12. Numbers 12, 6 through 8 says, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles as he beholds the form of the Lord. So the the Greek word in verse 13 translated as dimly could also be translated as obscurely or even a riddle. Other Bible versions say indistinctly or darkly or obscurely. Uh, One kind of fringe translation even says puzzling reflections. So now we see in a a mirror with puzzling reflections. So if this is an allusion to numbers, and I think it probably is, I think Paul probably intended that, he's saying that when Christ comes, we're no longer going to be seeing him with puzzling reflections or dimly in a mirror. He's saying we, like Moses are going to see him face to face. There's going to be no more of this seeing God in his word with the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see God and we are going to behold God and he is going to fully behold us. 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love. Let's just call those the big three. The big three, faith, hope, and love. And they're mentioned together by Paul In other places in the New Testament, these big three pop up all over the place. For example, Romans 5, in the context of uh, Paul explaining how God loved us even while we were still sinners, they they pop up there. They also pop up in Galatians 5, 5 through 6. It says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly, eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Also Colossians 1 and 4 through 5. Since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love that you have for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. There's those big three again. So they show up a lot in in Paul and, and elsewhere in the New Testament. Those aren't the only examples. And he's saying, look, these qualities are important now. These are the these are the big three. But the first two, as important as they are, are not going to be in eternity. And this is kind of shocking that the Bible teaches that at the present time we walk by faith, not by sight. But at that point, we're going to be walking by sight, not by faith. And we're not going to have to 
place our faith in Christ like we do now because we will be with him. The Bible also teaches that hope that is seen is not hope. Romans 8, 24 says, Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? So among these big three, as as big as they are, they're not going to last forever, but love is. He's trying to show the permanence and the enduring quality of love as opposed to the, the spiritual gifts. And he makes that point effectively by pointing to these big three and saying, look, even these things aren't going to last forever. Love is here to stay. If we had to summarize this chapter 13, we'd say this. Paul is teaching the believers in Corinth that all spiritual gifts must be exercised with agape love. And even if someone had full and perfect spiritual gifting, it would be nothing and produce nothing without love. There is no spiritual benefit from loveless use of the gifts because love is the most important part. Paul takes the time to explain and describe the type of agape love that must be governing the use of spiritual gifts, and he closes by pointing out the transient nature of spiritual gifts and contrasts that with the enduring presence and superiority of love. So this isn't a passage that we pull out and say, oh, look how wonderful love is between a man and a wife, when they, found, they find their soulmate and they, they fall in love, that is a good thing. It's, it's great to be in love, but that's not what this is about. This is about teaching the church that agape love must be present. Otherwise, you're just wasting your time with your spiritual gifts. We're going to draw two applications. One is very practical in nature. And the other points us to Christ. Number one, why is he writing this part of the letter? Why does Paul take the time? He's kind of rolling along with teaching on spiritual gifts. And then he's going to pick it up in 14 and keep going. Why does he he pause and, and chuck this down right in the middle and start talking about love? And I think the answer is, because they needed to hear it. Because the church in Corinth, as, as raw believers, needed this teaching. In other words, there were some there that were not exercising their spiritual gifts with agape love. And so they needed to hear this teaching. Do we need to hear this? That's the most direct application of this passage. Do we need to hear this teaching? There are a lot of gifted brothers and sisters, and I have met some gifted people. I have seen some gifted preachers, some gifted speakers. I have seen people gifted with the gift of hospitality that would just blow your socks off. I have seen the gift of organization. I have seen people gifted with um, students and youth and children and uh, just about everything, musical gifts. And some of them did need to hear this teaching. Some of them, even though they were, they were in the church and they were in Christ and they were professing Christ, they, they failed to see the, the Niagara Falls of spiritual gifts. 
They, they failed to see the need for agape love. They were very good at what they did. But there wasn't agape love. Paul says love is patient. Sometimes they were impatient. He says love is kind. Sometimes they were unkind to others. Love does not insist on its own way. Sometimes they were insisting on their own way. And here's the thing. Sometimes within local assemblies of churches and the church universal when someone falls into this temptation of, of, of going full throttle with their gifts and, and not having any love with it, sometimes the reaction of the body is, is to kind of back off and give them some space. They are so good at what they do, let's just let them do their thing. And yeah, they're not the most loving person and maybe they don't seem to be getting along with everybody, but man, look out, they know what they're doing. So let's just give them some space. There was an organist in one particular church who was technically flawless. I mean, concert level professional organist, but would occasionally have outbursts at the choir when they didn't come in at the right time or if they weren't loud enough when they should have been loud or soft enough when they were supposed to be soft. There were times when she would shut down and refuse to practice anymore unless they did her song the way she wanted to do it. And it's interesting because those that knew her, and I remember speaking with some of these people, they would, after one of these incidents, they would say, well, her name's not Mary, but they would say, well, that's just the way Mary is. And they would say, oh, we, we, you know, she's just so good. I don't know who else would get to do that, so I think we're just going to let her do her thing and let her get away with that. Were the notes correct? Yes, every time. Was she using her gift? Yeah, she was. Was the church being built up? No. And was that honoring to Jesus Christ? No, that, that was not honoring. Maybe none of us need to hear this. And that's good. Maybe that's true, but here it is. No matter how zealously we serve, no matter how good at what we do, no matter how good we are at what we do, if we're not operating out of love for God and love for his people, then there is no spiritual benefit in God's eyes. We're missing the most important part if we're missing love. And Christ is not pleased when we serve without love. Number two. Agape love is what God shows us in Christ. Look at what Paul says when he describes and unpacks agape love. He says, love is patient and kind. Look at Romans 2.4. It says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Love does not envy or boast. Jesus did not strive for worldly greatness. Jesus did not strive to be the most popular. He did not strive for recognition. Instead, Philippians 2.8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Where, as Isaiah says, he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus did not insist on his own way. Instead, he submitted himself to the Father's will. Matthew 26, 39, My Father, if it be possible, 
Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was not irritable or resentful. Remember, irritable can be translated as not easily angered. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If you've got a, an ESV, there's a footnote on resentful. can also be translated as does not count up wrongdoing or does not reckon the evil or keeps no record of wrongs. 2 Corinthians 5, 19, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. That's called not reckoning the evil. Does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the, tr- in the truth. In Christ, we are called to abhor what is evil. That's what the Bible teaches. And of course, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The love that we are told to exercise and live out, this agape love, is the same love that God has for us. It's the same love that, that reflects the character of, of God and of Christ, our Savior. Are we glad that God is slow to anger with us? Mm. Yes. Are we glad that God is patient with us? Amen to that. Are we thankful that Jesus took our place among the transgressors so that through faith in Christ, our sins are not counted against us? Two verses come to mind. One is 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Agape love. And Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you are missing Jesus Christ, you are missing the most important part of life. Love is the most important part of exercising our spiritual gifts. Jesus is the most important part of life. And we don't want to miss him. One day we will all stand before Christ. And when we stand before him, what will matter the most, more than anything else, is whether or not we have put our faith and trust in him and have followed him in this life. And how sad that would be if one day someone standing before Christ and they were asked if they'd come, come to faith and they replied with all the other things that they did. We can imagine someone saying, well, I got married and I had a family and I didn't break any major laws. Uh-huh. Oh, and I was, I was really successful. I started my own business, made a lot of money. Mm. Okay. Oh, and I was really sincere and honest as I could be, and I, I loved my kids, and I, I gave to charity, and I, I volunteered, and somebody might say, hold on, how, how long did you live? And they'd reply with whatever amount of time they were on the earth, 78, 54, 37, whatever. You went all that way, and you never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? You missed the most important part of life. Yeah, well, you know, there's just so much to experience and do and see in life. And I knew I could always get back to Jesus. He wasn't going anywhere. I'd just catch him some other time. If you're here this morning and if you have not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, 
if you've not let go of your pride, if you're, if you're still playing that game of pretending that everything's okay, but in your heart you know you have not repented and believed, then I implore you to turn to Christ. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you of your, of your sin at all, turn to Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin. Place your faith in Him. Love is the most important part of exercising spiritual gifts, but Jesus Christ is the most important part of life. Amen. Heavenly Father, we we do see so dimly, as Paul writes right now, but we see enough. We see enough to be without excuse. We, We see enough to know our need for a Savior. We see enough to to see our sin and our need for forgiveness. Father, thank you for revealing Jesus Christ, for showing us the way, the truth, and the life. Father, thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have through faith in your Son. Amen.